The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Andrew Gunther. He is the executive director of A Greener World, which is the home of America's leading food labels, including certified animal welfare approved, certified grass-fed, certified non-GMO. Since 2008, Andrew has spearheaded the unprecedented growth of their flagship certification, which is Certified Animal Welfare Approved, and its distinction as the only highly meaningful food label for farm animal welfare, including outdoor access and sustainability as designated by Consumer Reports. Previously, Mr. Gunther was the Senior Global Animal Compassionate Product Procurement and Development Specialist for Whole Foods Market, where he led the team that designed and launched the company's five-step welfare program in the United Kingdom. He himself is from an agricultural background. His wife and children pioneered the world's first organic poultry hatchery for chickens, and the Gunther family also managed the production and procurement for the largest independent organic chicken producer in the United Kingdom. Welcome, Mr. Gunther. Melinda, thank you so much for having me. Please call me Andrew. All right. Thank you very much. I happened upon a guide that is produced by A Greener World, titled Food Labels Exposed, A Definitive Guide to Common Food Label Terms and Claims. And I discovered this at a Midwestern Organic and Sustainable Education Service conference. And I was delighted to see many of the labels not only easily explained, but very much identified for how they mislead consumers. And I would like to go through that at least pulling out those labels that irritate me the most. And then why don't we launch right into our discussion about how you got into this work? Oh, I mean, two things. Um, The guide, an incredible piece of work. It was originally called Food Labels for Dummies, and it was sort of written for me to get my head around what was going on. And I sort of fell into this work almost by mistake. I sort of got recruited to work with Whole Foods to roll out a lot of their local programs and some of them near you. And about three years in, the direction changed a little bit, and I was a little unhappy, so I thought I'd move on. And I got the opportunity then to work with the Animal Welfare Proof Program as it was then, and to grow it and evolve it and put it into the marketplace. And what we found as we were doing this is there's a plethora of labels in the marketplace, and there's very little inspection or very little validity that goes under those labels. The system that is run here in the United States, it's all done by affidavit. There are very few organizations that actually third-party audit what's going on, and and we're all pretty used to that. You can't make a label claim in some parts of the world without being third-party certified. You then find out that they're actually not defined. So, you know, there's that great natural word, there's the free-range word, there's the... It's like the Wild West of food. You can have it in your farm name, So there's some really interesting spaces that you sit and go, what does that actually really mean? And 
you know, we'll probably talk about this a little bit, but let's just visit natural. You know, one of my key questions if I'm talking about labels is, what does natural actually mean? And you sort of say to the people in the room, you know, does it mean the animal's been on grass? Does it mean that it's been outdoors? Does it mean any of those things? Well, actually, no, it doesn't. It means, quote, unquote, minimally processed. It has absolutely nothing to do with how the animal was raised, slaughtered, or presented. It's how the finished product is minimally processed. So I think, from my point of view, that was the journey that we went down as an organization to say, well, our farmers are doing really, really great things, and they're meeting consumer expectations, but lots of consumers don't know what to look for. And then that was the journey that took us into Food Label Exposed. And we're really humbled that people like it. We'd like to give it away, actually, to an independent organization that doesn't certify, because we certify, and it feels unfair to write a label guide if your label's in it. Right. But ultimately, from our point of view, we try to be as respectful of other labels as we can be, but there are some realities. Right. Some of these labels mean absolutely nothing, and some of them are just downright misleading. Absolutely. And I have seen, I'm sure you have as well, some of the Hartman group reviews of different labels and how consumers look at them. And when I see consumers putting higher marks on natural than they do for certified organic, I'm really quite puzzled because, as you mentioned, I'm with you. Third-party audited, third-party certified, that is the gold standard for labels from my perspective. And natural, I always tell people to make that alliteration and to think natural means nothing or very little. And then, of course, the USDA and FDA have differing definitions of natural. I think we should get rid of it totally because it brings forth all sorts of imaginary pictures of farm fresh and sunshine, pure water, and it can be absolutely not that at all. So natural is one that I have a problem with. I'm glad to know that you share my concerns. The other one that I've seen that I'd really like to dive into with you is this idea that 100% vegetarian fed. What comes to my mind is, uh, yep, that means those animals are not pecking in the dirt to eat grubs or worms or other insects, and they're probably being fed GMO corn and soy. You have to go back to why did we want to know that animals weren't fed animals? And it's back to BSE, it's back to closed-loop feeding. There are some real issues feeding animals back to animals, and they're not good. So there was this whole horrific backlash to say, don't do it. But interestingly enough, if somebody says to me, oh, beef is, you know, why do you eat beef? Beef is one of the products that can eat a product that we can't eat, so grass, and turn that grass into protein. The majority of the U.S. beef is fed corn and other ingredients, but it's a ruminant. Its gut is designed to take plant and plant matter and convert that into protein or energy into protein. So the sort of the meme that people do with that is, you know, what's my superpower? And the, the cow's superpower is turning grass into protein. But if we dive back around then and look at things like pigs and things like chickens, they're omnivorous. They are monogast. They eat and need similar diets to humans. They have a need for methionine. They have a need for lysine. And all of those are very, very important micronutrients that the animal needs, and so do humans. So to suggest that you feed a chicken a diet that's made up purely of vegetables misses the point that a chicken would naturally 
forage on whatever was in front of it. So it's almost laughable that a chicken is vegetarian fed. However, there could be a risk of animal byproducts being fed to chickens that could end up with something that isn't very pleasant. So I don't think it's a necessarily meaningful label, but it's one of those that grabbed the consumer's imagination. Retailers grabbed a hold of it and made it a positive selling point, and it stuck. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought that up. And you mentioned BSE, and we should just let our listeners know that that stands for bovine spongiform encephalopathy or mad cow disease. And it occurs when animals eat animal products, and then we eat those animals. So I like to tell people that we are what we eat, and we are also what our animals eat. It matters going down the food chain. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. Mm-hmm. And then it falls on the consumer then to contact the company. And this can take, I know for sure, that this can take, you know, the better part of half a day trying to track down what an animal is eating, which is another reason why I really like the certified organic label, because I know that those animals are not eating genetically modified grain. And then there are some other standards depending on the animals. But again, it's that third party certification. Now with your animal welfare approved labeling, Does that include the animal's diet? Tell me what your label means. So we do everything from birth through death. So we need to know how mama was raised. We need to know how the youngster was born. We need to know how they were kept throughout their life. And then we need to know how they were slaughtered. All of our animals have to be stunned before they're slaughtered. So they're insensible to pain. And we inspect the slaughter plants they go. And, And we're not perfect. Mistakes are made at slaughter plants. The key for us is how the staff fix them and the overall attitude. You can make a mistake, and we really look at that. Then we care about what they eat, and it depends which species it is as to what we care about. So we suggest and require that our farmers look for the absence of GMs when they can, but sometimes it is not available, and sometimes it's insanely expensive. So you know, a 50-pound bag of poultry food produced from local wheats and grains can be uh, $10, $12. A so-called certified non-GM bag of uh, chicken food can be as high as $30. Mm-hmm. And there's a balance in that space. But in terms of cattle, an organic don't necessarily have this one. We do require a large percentage of the animal's diet to come from forage and dry matter, which is what the animal's used to eating. Right. The largest user of baking soda in the United States is the confinement cattle industry. And this number may be out of date, but it was a number I had a year or so ago. I should really check it. But one of the largest users then in the United States of baking soda is the feedlot cattle industry to deal with the bloat caused by the diet, the high-protein diets that they're given. And understand, in no way am I holding the farmer's feet to the fire here Consumers have a role to play in this. They're demanding this ever cheaper food, and food production is measured in efficiency just of feed in, weight gain. A lot of the costs of food production are externalized. So, you know, people don't really understand that actually there are other costs to the food rather than the straight dollar cost, whether that's an environmental cost. Sometimes with confinement feeding, you can have uh, runoff and pollution. With confinement feeding, they're feed-eating grain, and human animals are better at processing grain, actually, than, than other species of animals. And then the miles that this grain travels, and then some of the chemicals that are used on the grains. But it was all driven by 
cheap food. Right. So-called cheap food. Yeah, many times when this discussion comes up with regard to this drive for cheap food, I like to put it back on our larger economical structure and say, why can't people afford to eat good food and what keeps it out of the marketplace? Because it forces us to think beyond the immediate consumer decision and it forces us to look farther up the river to say, why is it that the consumer is so limited, increasingly so, in their choices, despite the fact that we do have a growth of farmers markets and people are able, if they're lucky, to buy more meat directly from the farmer. You can have this discussion about what you'd like to see. But even at my own farmer's market, I don't believe there is any certified organic meat for the very reasons that you originally stated. You know, the cost of the feed is really prohibitive, even though those farmers would really like to do the right thing and not feed GMO grain. It is becoming increasingly more difficult to find that grain, let alone afford it. All incredible points. And it's one of the few times I've been chatting with somebody in a situation like this where you really have done your homework and you understand some of the challenges. It's the availability of food. It's the cost of certification. And I'm not in any way belittling that. But we also have to understand that we've been set some expectations and we go back to the chicken in every pot statement post-World War II when there was a recovery and and people where they'd been shy of, of eating meat during the war for good reasons, we've actually been educated to eat more than we should. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been taught to expect large portions at our restaurants and the competitive nature of the television adverts you see where it's look how much more steak you get in our restaurant than the other restaurant, rather than actually the quality of the product. And then our other one is we it's a pet peeve of mine, we've stopped teaching folks at school how to learn how to cook because that is really the solution is if you can cook at home and you take a minute to source, you can have incredible meals when they're available. What upsets me constantly is the very people that need good food are the very people that cannot afford good food. Um, A friend of mine was talking about a nutrition conference and they took a look at the speakers and they said to me yes this is a conference where people that are incredibly healthy are going to get together and figure out how much more healthy they can be Mm. we seem to have forgotten where we should be pushing our good food message and we count nutrition in calories we don't count nutrition and quality and i'm not a nutritionist i'm not pretending to be but while we're fighting to get people just pure calories We can't necessarily fight to get them good calories. Mm. And that's an area that as as a nation we have to get our head around. Good food is a right. It's not a privilege. Mm -hmm. We have to drive into food chains and we have to drive people out who aren't adding value. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that, if you're further processing product, you're not necessarily adding value. You've just come up with a new brand Mm -hmm. and another way of selling more of it. And our market is predicated on selling more. Mm-hmm. It's not about selling quality. Success is how much more meat you can sell. So there's no real financial incentive for somebody to sell a sort of five-ounce steak uh, mm-hmm. from a you know, high-welfare sustainable system with pretty good fats in it at six ounces when they can sell 12 ounces 
smaller margin and make the same money back that they could get. And that's a challenge for us as we seek to change the food industry. Absolutely. Let me take one moment and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are joined by Mr. Andrew Gunther. He is the executive director of A Greener World, which is home of America's leading food labels. You're right. There are people who can afford to have both the knowledge and access to, quote unquote, good food. But the majority of individuals, I would argue, in the United States are largely micronutrient deficient because of the way we produce our food. And I have different pictures that I use in my own presentations, like the fourth meal from Taco Bell, or there's a billboard in the panhandle of Texas that says, you know, if you can eat this 72-ounce steak within a certain amount of time, you can have the meal for free. And I always say the question shouldn't be, can I do it? But how on earth can they make that affordable? <laughs> yeah, there isn't really an answer to, to it. It's, it's how we've sold food. Mm-hmm. We sell food as one part of a day, and then we are taught to make our day more busy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I understand this, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm humbled to know a couple of nutritionists, Taking your time to eat is an important piece of eating and digesting. So much Um, so. The social aspect to sharing food. And we don't have the time. We're too busy trying to pay our mortgage or we're too busy trying to buy a car. We're too busy to try and buy the next flat screen. Some people are just working three jobs just to pay their rent. Somehow we have to find a way to get good food into that space. And I'm not belittling America's food system in in that context. I think all systems could be made better. What I'm actually saying is we step back first is to get out of processed food, to get out of eating food in a hurry, to make mealtime special, and that helps with the digestive system. And then we can start working on getting out these systems changed so they don't pollute the planet because our so-called cheap food is actually incredibly expensive because in certain states in North America, we have lagoons full of liquefied manure, which can't be spread on the ground because the ground is already saturated with phosphate. It's already saturated with nitrogen. It's already saturated with heavy metals. And what I mean by that, and this is, you know, I'm a guy who can make any plant you want die when I garden. <laughs> I'm absolutely terrible at it. But I put on a little bit of fertilizer and I try hard. But it is possible to actually over-fertilize your ground to the point nothing will grow. Mm-hmm. So in the U.S. right now, we have a burgeoning nutrient problem. In Maryland, there's there's an issue up there with chicken litter. Right. Uh, Down through North Carolina, there's the the slurry out of these very large uh, pig houses. That cost isn't actually being put back into the food cost at the register. And whilst that food cost is externalized, this alternative food, this differently produced food then, not to make it competitive, or to belittle anybody else, is almost expensive. Mm-hmm. But if we put the cost back in, then it's incredibly competitive. The issue is that that isn't controlled by farmers anymore. It's controlled by multinational food companies. And they do a brilliant job of bringing dollar-cheap food to the store. But while we're doing that, and we as consumers are doing that, we need to tell them, hey, guys, that isn't what our children's need and our children's children's need. They need a planet to live on that's healthy, that's green, that I grew up in, 
that you can walk around and walk in the streams. I mean, if we look at the Gulf of Mexico and the algae bloom, it is absolutely huge. That algae bloom in the Gulf of Mexico is directly linked to the farming systems of corn and soy, the majority of which are used to feed livestock. So you've got the nutrient runoff into the streams, the streams go into the river, the river goes into the Gulf of Mexico, and if you go on Google Earth, you will see a huge picture of an algae bloom. Mm -hmm. It's directly related to crop production, and most of those crops go into food animals. Exactly. So there's a direct line correlation between our eating behavior and the health of some plants of our planet. Right. And these are also called dead zones. And they're frightening because we are losing our fish as well as our cultural foodways. For individuals who have known nothing but fishing in those regions, suddenly it disappears. And there are so many problems that explode from a single source of poor farming decisions that have, by no fault of the farmer, really, they have been thrust into this system through economic and corporate policies and political policies in Washington. Well, I want to get back into the food label brochure if we can, because I know that my mm -hmm. time with you is limited and there are some issues that are troubling to me. And we touched on one of them before we started our interview, and that had to do with the non-GMO label. I have been in sessions with consumers where they are very surprised to find out that the non-GMO label does not guarantee that their food does not contain glyphosate which is the herbicide that has been partnered with most genetically modified foods, including the corn and soy. So when we find a label that says non-GMO, what can we expect? I think what you can expect is the absence of uh, genetically engineered, genetically modified materials. What you can't expect is the absence of glyphosate uh, Roundup, or, or any of the other herbicides and pesticides that, that might be used because the uh, glyphosate is used as a desiccant. And what I mean by that is that when the crop is ready for harvest, they'll spray it to get rid of moisture. Moisture is the enemy of grain farmers, whether that be a, a pea or a bean or otherwise. And at that point, you can have glyphosate in a non-GM product. I think so for people who don't want the genetically modified source material, that's exactly what it does. It says that on the tin. It's third-party validated and certainly a non-GM project. Go ahead and do that by testing. What we discovered was that the number of things that, that that was very expensive for our farmers, and it may not have met with the consumer expectations because we discovered actually that in food animal feed, so feeding your pigs or feeding your chickens, you can have an average of 5% inclusion of genetically modified material, which means you can test 0, 0, 15 and still be certified. So our standards, we have a non-GM seal, are down at the 0.9 inclusion. But I do think if you're looking for the absence of the engineered materials in the non-GM O-label, you're going to find them. If you're looking for sustainable farming techniques, possibly not. And if you're looking for the absence of glyphosate and others, possibly not. That doesn't mean to say it's definitely there, but it's certainly not specifically prohibited. Before we get to our closing, I want to just make sure that everybody knows how to find this particular publication. The title, again, is Food Labels Exposed, A Definitive Guide to Common Food Label Terms and Claims. It's produced by A Greener World, and it is a agreenerworld.org. I'll provide a link with this interview. 
Let me put the ball back in your court, though, Andrew, and just ask you, are there any points that you want to make sure our consumers know about? I think number one is, is having you out there doing your work is, is incredible. Getting us on here, we're, we're humbled to be on here. But I say to everybody, you'll spend weeks figuring out what car you want to buy. You'll probably spend a couple of days figuring out what movie you want to go to see. You'll spend three seconds figuring out what you're going to eat and you don't look. It's probably the best time you can make. Now, Food Labels Exposed is a really good document to start. But just figure out where your food's coming from. Follow the supply chain. And if the supply chain is murky, if the standards aren't publicly available in front of you on a website immediately, assume you are being greenwashed. You might not be, but just make that assumption. Become suspicious. Look deeper. The natural label, frankly, is absolutely meaningless. The organic label is a phenomenal label. They were just about to have animal welfare claims in it, and they've been brushed to one side. So right now, the organic label, if you're looking for animal welfare, you're not necessarily going to find it in the organic label. However, there are some brilliant organic farmers who have been greenwashed with some farmers who are farming right close to the organic standards where they've got 20 to 30,000 chickens in a house fed an organic diet and very rarely see the sunlight. Mm-hmm. Those, those things happen. And then, you know, cage-free, frankly, no idea what it actually means. I mean, it means free of a cage. It doesn't say how big the cage must or must not be. And the science around a chicken is a chicken only recognizes 20 points. So the chicken can feel trapped if she's got 19 of her friends near her because that's as far as she can see. Hmm. So just be careful. As I said, you buy a car, you look at the MPG, you look at the rating of the used vehicle, you go and pick up a piece of ground meat wrapped in a piece of plastic, and you have no clue where it came from. Figure that out and start talking to your food companies, because if you talk to the food companies, they'll listen. They're responsive. They're market-driven. So that's my two cents is keep your eyes open, and then We have an information email. We try to be as honest as we can. Remember, we have our own labels, but I don't want us ever to be seen to decry others to our benefit. But independent people say our labels are the the top to look for. But we want to change the way everybody eats. I want downtown Baltimore to feast on high welfare, sustainable food every night of the week, no matter what their earning potential is, their educational output is. Good food is a right, and that's our dream is to bring good food at all. We're excited to be starting to use our seal in Africa to help farmers get ahead of confinement operations so the local farmers can say, hey, we're outdoors and we're going to stay outdoors. And then again, looking at it into Europe, we've got some farmers who are applying to to join the program there. So our seal is free, the animal welfare seal. We're funded by donation. We're not for profit. And we do try desperately to be as independent as we can and not to belittle others. But Farmers are the custodians of the countryside. They're not our enemy. They're not people we should be continually railing on. We drive how they produce food with our buy decision. And what I mean by that is when we buy food and continue to buy food that is so-called cheap, we continue to drive the systems that we don't like. We have to engage with our food and engage in a way that our grandparents did and bring it back under our purview. Well, I'm going to have to end our conversation there. 
We have been speaking with Mr. Andrew Gunther, Executive Director of A Greener World. We will make sure that your website is available to everyone. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, thank you so much for being my guest, Andrew. Well, thank you so much for having me. 